This is a recording made in the chapter of the open book, and it is number one of a series entitled The Hope of Resurrection. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together, so those of you who are listening, if you care to switch off for a little while, we'll read together the first two chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes. In our English language, there are quite a number of words that begin with the two letters R-E, which means repeat or over again. You can think of them, redemption, reconciliation, regeneration, and resurrection. You think of others, restitution, restoration, repent, or you can go on. Well, that of itself, that very fact, begins to creep into the pessimism which you hear in Solomon's experience. I don't say pessimism in the wrong sense, because pessimism is the name of a philosophy. A philosophy of a person who has faced affairs, who hasn't looked through rosy spectacles, who can't see that there's any good in this everlasting going round and round in a circle. You remember in the first chapter, this wise man looked out, he said, everything's going in a circle. The sun no sooner rises than he's tearing across the sky to settle. All the rivers run into the sea, yet they're not full. Back they go and shower upon the earth again. One generation coming, another going. And then presently, you remember he said he, he, he had made an experiment. He indulged in all sorts of frivolity and all sorts of experience, yet keeping his wisdom with him. It was an experiment. And when he looked at all the labours of his hands, he could have anticipated Hardy's pessimistic poem of what's the good of it all, I said. And I think we can feel a little echo in our own hearts sometimes when we are conscious that in this very world there is much of that to distress us. Now, he was at the beginning of things. He was probing. You and I are in this position, friends, that if Christianity is a fact, then Christ has risen. Because if Christ hasn't written, well, we're worse off than Ecclesiastes because we are living towards the end of time and there's no solution now. He was looking forward and exper ex experimenting. We look back not experimenting, but realising that there is a basis beneath our feet. And then you see the thing that struck him most, he expresses in this second chapter. He said, I could see that wisdom excel folly, as light excel is darkness. But then he says, that's all very well, but he said, tell me, one event happeneth to all. How dies a wise man? Like a fool. And he picks up that thought and he continues it in more passages than one. So this will be a good preface, I think, to the consciousness that we have of a blessed fact, resurrection. This man was haunted, and he put in the very beginning of his uh, writing what he had come to at the end, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And you see, this man was not deficient in wisdom, and he was not deficient in wealth. He could pile up all the things to go to make life worth living. But he realised that if there was no answer to this one question, it didn't matter whether you lived 
What does he say? If a man lives 10,000 years twice told. That's what he says. Even though he does. It's just one event. So should we just let him speak before we turn to other scriptures? Chapter 3, verse 18. I said in my heart concerning the estate of the sons of men that God might manifest them that they might see that they are they themselves are beasts. Well, why do you say that? Well, he says, look, that which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beasts. Even one thing befalleth them. As one dieth, so dieth the other. Yea, they have all one breath, so that a man hath no preeminence above a beast, for all his vanity. All go into one place, all are of the dust, and all turn to dust again. And he asks a question. He wishes he could get a positive answer to it. Who knoweth? The spirit of man that goeth upward, and the spirit of the beast that goeth downward. Who knows? He's beginning now. This is the beginning of the quest. And as you go through, he's gradually approaching an answer. Eventually, he says, you know, it's no good stirring up your heart over all the problems you meet. There, there is the day of judgment. He's touching it now, only just getting a glimpse that it's beyond the present realm. But while we have Ecclesiastes before us, let's turn to two more passages. Chapter 9, verses 2 and 3. Chapter 9, verses 2 and 3. All things come alike to all. There is one event to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the clean and to the unclean, to him that sacrifices and to him that sacrifices not. As is the good, so is the sinner. And he that sweareth, as he that feareth an oath. This is an evil among all things that I have done under the sun, that there is one event to all. You see, he doesn't realise that when that one event is passed, there is going to be a discrimination. The sheep and the goats, the saved and the lost. But that demands resurrection. But it certainly doesn't take place in this life. For Solomon lived in a period when he can look back over centuries and know full well it hadn't taken place. And then in chapter 12, where he begins to sum up matters. Chapter 12. Remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. While the sun, or the light, or the moon, or the stars be not darkened, <coughs> nor the clouds return after the rain, now comes a very peculiar poetic reference to old age and ultimate death. In the day when the keepers of the house shall tremble, and the strong men shall bow themselves, and the grinders cease because they are few, and those that look out of the windows be darkened, and the doors shall be shut in the streets when the sound of the grinding is low, and he shall rise up at the voice of a bird, and all the daughters of music shall be brought low, also when they shall be afraid of that which is high, and fears shall be in the way, and the almond tree shall flourish, and the grasshopper shall be a burden, and desire shall fail, because man goeth to his long home, and the mourners go about the streets, or ever the silver cord be loosed, or the golden bowl be broken, or the pitcher be broken at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, then shall the dust return to the earth as it was. He's going to be a bit positive, friends, in his last chapter. He created it. 
and the Spirit shall return to God who gave it at the beginning. He hasn't actually reached what we would call resurrection. But he's got to a point that somewhere when this one event is past, the angel the dust returned to the earth as it was. That's where he, he felt it all ended. And the spiritual return unto God that gave it, that's where he begins to get a gleam of hope. Well now there's another man in the scriptures, equally a very wise man, and his name is Job. Uh, what we are doing this evening is canvassing the Old Testament for our hints, for suggestions, for types, for promises, for prophecies, anything to indicate that it was there, that it wasn't crystallized into a doctrine as we have it today. So we look at the book of Job. And we pick out a few features. Will you turn to the 14th chapter straight away, because if I start with the first chapter of Job, we, we shan't even get through uh, the analysis of this one book this evening. I suppose you know that Thomas Carlyle, with among his literary friends, if they could start him off reading the book of Job, he'd sit there and read the thing, and they all tiptoed out and left it in an empty room, still reading away. There's a fascination about this book, which we must resist, of course, because we've got to remember limitations of time and the purpose we have in front of us. Now, chapter 14. He says, I'm, I'm skipping the first verses because of time. He's, he's meditating. For there is hope of a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again, and the tender branch thereof will not cease. Though the root thereof wax old in the earth, and the stock thereof die in the ground, yet through the scent of water it will bud and bring forth boughs like a plant, but man dieth and wasteth away. Yea, man giveth up the ghost, and where is he? But he started. You know, the Bible of the ancients was not written in a book. God says in one, one Romans 1 that the visible, the invisible things of God are seen by the works of his hands. And Job has had his attention drawn to a tree that's cut down to the roots. And then presently out from that dead looking stock comes a sprout. And he almost echoes the words of Paul, does God take care of trees? You know, Paul says, does God take care of oxen? He says, is it possible that God takes care of that tree and he doesn't take care of me? Oh, let's read on then, because he may be reaching something. Verse 12. So man lieth down, and riseth not, till the heavens be no more. Oh, wait a minute, till? That's not final then, is it? Man lieth down, but till. And just incidentally, the Septuagint reads, till the heavens be unstitched. Unstitched? Well, the firmament is likened to a curtain and a tent in which God dwells. So when it's dissolved and taken to pieces, that's unstitched, it's all right. So Job's anticipating truth, isn't he? He's got right to the end of the book of the Revelation now in one sweep. So man lies down and riseth not till the heavens be no more. They shall not awake, nor be raised out of their sleep. Job, if you go on like that, you'll be said to be a heretic because you're saying that death is asleep and resurrection is to awake. Well, that's what we believe to be true, but some people won't have that. Job says, awake and sleep. 
Then he says, Oh, that thou wouldst hide me in the grave, that thou wouldst keep me secret. The grave isn't a very pleasant prospect, but thou wilt keep me secret. Makes you wonder, doesn't it? What God will do. You get the wonderful statement in Colossians which takes it right out into the glorious opening that when Christ who is our life shall appear, your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life shall appear, then shall you appear with him in glory. So, here's Job. Until thy wrath be passed, and thou wouldest appoint me a set time and remember me. Then he stops. Uh, he says, am I going on a bit too uh, easy? If a man dies, shall he live again? And he seems to answer his own question. All the days of my appointed time will I wait till my change come. Now, you couldn't possibly expect a translator to, to say, all my days will I, uh, appointed time will I wait till I sprout. But the very word sprout again is the very word Job uses of himself. He says, that little sprout has given me hope all my appointed time while I wait as a dead stock. And I will sprout again. I will begin to manifest life again. Thou shalt call. And I will answer thee. How are you going to do that if you're dead, Job? Well, nobody asked him that question, so we let it pass. But it was challenged in the days of our Saviour, because you remember in John's Gospel he says, those that are in the grave shall hear the voice of the Son of God. He said, well, how could anybody? Before he died, our Saviour stood at an empty, stood at a tomb that was sealed, and he called the name of the dead man, and the man heard. So we may not understand all the ways in which it's accomplished, but it's already embedded in the book. Thou shalt call, and I will answer thee, and thou wilt have a desire to the work of thine hands. And the word desire means to be pale with anxiety. He says, I realize that God is not indifferent to my sufferings. But the answer will be given me not now in this life perhaps. I don't know. But in that life, yes. So here's the beginning of hope dawning on Job with regard to waking after centuries have passed and waking in uh, that day to enjoy salvation in its fullest sense so far as he had knowledge of it. Well then you look a bit further. 90 chapter. This gives us that wonderful verse which is known the world round. Verse 25. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. Well, what about you, Job? Well, I'm coming to that, he says. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, for mine eye shall behold not another, though my reins be consumed within me. Now, there's a reason to query the translation of verse 26. Uh, our version says, Though after my skin. Now, it's not time and an opportunity to start going into the Hebrew language with you, friends, uh, but of, of exhibiting on this chart, which you may have seen before, a test I made. You will see in the uh, second line from the top, it says, the Hebrew is the two letters, you are, er. And they are translated rain. And that very word comes in this expression, after my skin. It's a, just a matter of whether you divide a word up by that syllable or by that syllable that makes it one meaning or another. 
Well, I thought, how am I going to decide? How is anybody going to decide? For one translator says, it means after my skin. Another translator says, oh no, it means when I shall wake or when I shall be raised. And then I said to myself, now this book, like all the word of God, is under his superintendence. So I put into practice that principle which I advocate. The words which the Holy Ghost teaches, comparing spiritual with spiritual. Well now you see, it says in chapter 3, verse 8, um, let them curse it, that curse the day, who are ready to raise up their mourning, and in the margin, Leviathan. Raise up their mourning is very equivalent to raising up the devil. But never mind, I've got the word Leviathan. And at the very last, in chapter 41, 10, none dare raise him up. Oh, he's called the Leviathan. Oh, I thought this off, I've got it. Can you enter into the feeling of suddenly seeing, suddenly seeing something crystallised in front of your eye? Here it is. I've got it, I've got the beginning and the end, these two strange words. It means raise up in both places. Then we get Bildad's challenge and Job's answer. That's the, set, the chapter 8, 6 and 30, 29. Now, chapter 14 that we, re- we read just now. Raised up out of sleep. Exactly balances chapter 19, 26. After I shall awake or be raised out of sleep. And then in the middle, the innocent raised up. Well, to me, that's finish. To dislocate that perfect pattern and say, I'm going to have worms instead, they will, you, you could have them. But there it is. It's decided the way this Hebrew word is to be chopped, whether you do it that way or that way, and all I'm going to do is to leave it there because I don't want to waste our time, but I think it demonstrates itself. Well, now shall we just turn for a moment to the 33rd chapter, and then we must leave the book of Job. 33rd chapter. This is where Elihu is speaking to Job. He says in verse uh, 21, His flesh is consumed away that it cannot be seen, and his bones that were not seen stick out. Yea, his soul draweth near unto the grave, and his life to the destroyers. If there be a messenger with him, an interpreter, one among a thousand, to show unto man his uprightness, then he is gracious unto him and saith, Deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a rat. With that in view, will you turn with me to the prophet Hosea? Just for one passage. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. You'll find him in that order. And in chapter 13 of the prophet Hosea, Verse 14, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. Ransom. You see, there's so many times the word redemption is used for the forgiveness of sins, and so many times it's forgotten that even though your sins are forgiven, and then you live 10,000 years twice told and you're dying at the end of it, you'll have to join in with Solomon and say, vanity and vexation of spirit. The God who sent the ransom to deliver us from guilt as given the same ransom to deliver us from the bondage of death. So here it is. I will ransom thee from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. All death I will be thy plagues. All grave I will be thy destruction. And so on. That is picked out, you remember, in 1 Corinthians 15, which we shall have to look at in due course. Well now let's go back on our story a little bit. 
Take for instance this story we get in Genesis 22. <clears throat> From one angle it seems a very desperate thing to ask any man to offer up his son as a sacrifice. You can understand some people revolting against this passage. But of course they're forgetting that they're dealing with God. And God knows the end before the beginning starts. And God who tested Abraham had already provided on the top of that mountain a ram caught with its, with its horns in a thicket waiting for him if he went up there. God knew that. And so when the moment came for Abraham to even go to the extreme, the angel said, stop, stop Abraham, now I know, now I know. But you notice what Abraham is uh, reported to have said. <coughs> Uh, the 22nd chapter. Uh, let's see how the Lord addressed him. Verse 2. Take now thy son, not only so, thine only son. That's a bit more, isn't it? Isaac. Whom thou lovest. Or if you could only realise, because you couldn't really well have said much to Abraham at that time, but Abraham was entering into the heart of God, wasn't he? See, God was going to give his son, his only son, whom he loved. And this man was called the friend of God. And he was being told to take his son, his only son, whom he loved. And so they went to them, as you remember, both of them together. And in verse 5, Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship, and come again to you and come again to you. The word come is plural. We will come again to you. Was that wishful thinking? Well, how do we know? Supposing God has made a comment on it. I think we better read Hebrews 11 and find out whether Abraham really meant what he said. Hebrews 11. The great chapter of faith. Verse 17. By faith, Abraham when he was tried or tested, <coughs> offered up Isaac. You say, he never offered him at all. He did in heart, friend. The act of doing it was the very last straw, but God knew. I think we must take comfort in that ourselves because sometimes we start out to do something for him and circumstances are against us and we're baffled. But he knows. He judges the thoughts and the intents of the heart, not merely the act that's done. <coughs> By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, according that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. So there's a double emphasis on resurrection <coughs> when you consider Isaac. In the ninth chapter of the uh, 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 fourth chapter, I'm sorry, of uh, Romans, you read this. Concerning the birth of Isaac, it was promised to him that he should be the father of many nations. Verse 17, Before him who we believed, even God who quickeneth the dead. So uh, before the birth of Isaac, Abraham didn't really believe in him or Jehovah, but God that quickeneth the dead. 
And then when the moment came to offer his son, he still believed in God that quickeneth the dead, for he received him in like figure. So you see, right back in, as far as Abraham, there could be the consciousness that God was the God that raised the dead. Now there are many other passages, of course, that will come to your mind. <clears throat> Let's look at one or two in the Psalms. Psalm 16, of course, is quoted in the New Testament. Let's see it in its original setting. Psalm 16, verses 8 to 11. Psalm 16, verse 10, For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Now you know those, those words are quoted by Peter and by Paul in the Acts of the Apostles, Acts 2 and Acts 3, 13. We'll look at those in a moment. But we have another psalm waiting for us. Psalm 17. As for me, this is the last verse, As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. When I awake. He only uses that word, but you know he's on the same track as Job and Ecclesiastes. There is to be an awakening. And this man's going further. He says, I shall be satisfied. When I awake with thy likeness. Well this is what we get in the New Testament more places than one. We read in the epistle to the Philippians. Who shall change this body of our humiliation. That it may be fashioned like unto his body of glory. Well we shall be satisfied when that and our part of our hope takes place. Well why have we got the word satisfied in view in connection with resurrection. Before we go to the Acts of the Apostles. Look at Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. This is a great prophecy concerning our Saviour's death, where he was smitten, where he was bruised for our iniquities. It says in verse 8, he was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. And even here it's true. He made his grave with the wicked ones and with the rich one, Arimathea, Joseph of Arimathea in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. And when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, He shall see his seed. Well, how is he going to do that? When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, well, it says he poured out his soul unto death in verse 12. So when his soul was made an offering for sin, he was poured out unto death. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Well, that's resurrection. There's no other way of answering that. So you see, it is embedded in the Old Testament although we might find 
difficulty sometimes in piecing it together. Shall we now turn to that passage which we have postponed, just to see that those references in the Psalms are actually given apostolic authority. The Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2. Now, um, Peter is speaking to those men who were connected with the very death of Christ. So we'll go back to verse 22 and read. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, that's God's part, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. That's, God, that's what man did. Because our Saviour distinctly said in John's Gospel, I lay down my life of myself, no man taketh it from me. Whatever you do, never get the idea that unless wicked men had crucified him, Christ would never have died for our sins. He came to offer himself. And in that hour of darkness where nobody knew what took place, he did it. But the cross was an added insult and an added evidence of where how far the flesh will go in its animosity. Whom God hath raised up. This is how he goes on. After you've done all that, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life, thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulchre is with us unto this day. And another place he says, David hath not yet ascended into the heavens, even up to this time. But what a contrast with his greater son that he speaks of here. So, in verse 31 he says, He seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ. Now that's an apostolic comment. So we are justified in going back to the book of the Psalms and say that spoke of the resurrection of Christ, not merely resurrection in general, or a feeding after it as Ecclesiastes seemed to. Well then you will see, that the Apostle Paul follows on the same line, and we'll get a double witness over this, because if you're indifferent to the resurrection of Christ, well, you're indifferent to the whole plan of salvation. Chapter 13, verse... Oh, where do we go for this now? Oh, right down... Um, I think we'll get verse 47. No, 27. For they that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath day. Oh, what a thought that is. To have the prophets read your hearing every Sabbath day, when he came to fulfill them all, you just rejected him. You fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they Pilate that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, even though they were rejecting him, 
and denying the book, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulchre. But God, always one of those interventions that we are so glad to see, but God raised him from the dead. And it goes on to say in verse 33, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said on this wise, I will give unto you the sure mercies of David. Wherefore he saith also in another psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thy holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised again saw no corruption. And so he goes on, throwing you back to this Old Testament series of statements and saying there were definitely prophecies that were pointing to the resurrection of Christ. Now, shall we go back again to the um, Old Testament just for uh, two more references? Isaiah chapter 26 verse 19 This is a very peculiar statement and yet it comes right in the midst of this chapter and seems to be de definitely written in contrast with another company. To make myself clear, that's not very clear is it up to the moment. Verse 14 he says in verse 13, Other lords beside thee have had dominion over us, but by thee only will we make mention of thy name. They are dead. They shall not live. They are the deceased. Now that's the word rephaim, which is translated uh, giants or whatnot. This is the peculiar scene that we find in the land of Canaan. Goliath and all his brood. They are dead. They shall not live. They are deceased. They shall not rise. They shall not rise. Now, turn the page to verse 19. Here's the other side of the story. Thy dead men shall live. They belong to him. Thy dead shall live. Together with my dead body shall they arise. So he is a group. Together with me. Awake and sing ye that dwell in the dust. For thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead, or the rephaim, cast them out, but not in the sense of being raised to life everlasting. And then we turn the page to the prophecy of Daniel. And the book of Daniel, as you know, divides into two parts. The historic part ends largely with that passage where Daniel being cast into the den of lions and the uh, the uh, king is asking is thy God able to deliver thee? And also we read that the the seal was put upon the tomb uh, upon the dead, the seal. Well now we have chapter 12 of Daniel. And at that time shall Michael stand up the great prince that standeth for the children of thy people and that's the thing to be remembered when we're looking at 1 Thessalonians 4 in connection with the resurrection of that group. For it is the voice of the archangel that they hear. 
And Michael is the great prince that stands for Israel. So the 1 Thessalonians 4 cannot possibly be the hope of the church of the mystery when the hope of Israel is suspended. At that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation even at that same time. And at that time thy people shall be, is the word, delivered. Is thy God able to deliver in the historic part? The prophecy says yes. Every one that shall be found written in the book, the ransomed of the Lord, they shall be delivered. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. To deal with that out, uh, adequately would mean setting apart a whole period because of the possibility of the word everlasting here is given an eternal value which it doesn't possess. But for the moment, we're on one track. That there will be a resurrection that we have not merely to go to the New Testament, the Gospels, the Acts and the Epistles and whatnot to discover traces of it, but we've got it deeply involving the teaching of the Old Testament. It may not be so specific, but it's surely there. From the desire of Ecclesiastes to get some answer, to the dawn upon the consciousness of Job, to the fact that Abraham himself believed God that quickens the dead, and then the definite statements in the Psalms, I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. They all are enough, I think, for those who have ears to hear that this is a fact, a blessed fact. Well, then there are subsidiary proofs, if you wish them. Take, for instance, our Saviour referring to the type of Jonah. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Can you have anything more specific? And that's a proof that the Old Testament type was intended by God. It wasn't a casual thing that happened to Jonah. It was a definite part of the typical teaching. As and so. And then you will remember that more than once it is stressed for three days. Three days. Three days. If you go back to the first chapter of the book of Genesis, it's on the third day that the buried, submerged earth is seen again. Let the dry land appear on the third day. On the third day. And then you will find that when Moses demanded that the children of Israel should be set free to worship their God, Pharaoh said, and, and how far have you got to go? He said, a three days journey in the wilderness. Why not two days? Pharaoh wanted to argue with them. Oh, why don't you do it in the land? Why have this? Oh, it must be three days. And I think you will find as you go through scripture, that the third day keeps on coming up. The prophet Hosea that we looked at just now says, after two days thou wilt revive us, and the third day we shall live in thy sight. Well, that may mean 3,000 years. After 2,000 years, when they're not God's people, the third thousand years is when they're going to be revived and live again in his sight. So, I think this will have to satisfy us for our first study that in approaching this mighty theme of the resurrection, we've just looked at some outstanding passages, prophecies, probings, 
some given by inspiration, some allowed by God to be written for our guidance, and we begin to realize that God indeed is the God that raises the dead. Well, if that's the case, we've now got a gospel that not only has a word of comfort for us in this life, but gives us a blessed hope of that which lies beyond. And of course we can understand how the Apostle says, but if it's only in this life we have hope, we're of all men most miserable. For we've given up some things in this life that we might have enjoyed, and there's no life to come to compensate us. But that's an if, which is only an if of argument. So we have in front of us now a series of studies in which we are going to seek to demonstrate as far as it's humanly possible the historic fact and the doctrinal purpose of the resurrection. And we shall also have to include in one of our studies some of the passages uh, that are rather tangled up and need a little bit of unravelling. And uh, by saying that, I'm not posing as one who knows all the answers. I hope that you will remember me so that the Lord may stoop and use this earthen vessel and the words that are given and recorded will be acceptable in his sight, both at my Lord and my Redeemer.